morning, Newcastle. Good to see you this morning. If you would, please join us in worship. If you would, stand. song doesn't get you going this morning, then you need some coffee or to go to bed earlier, okay? Because that is, that is the reason why we're here this morning. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which says this, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That song we just got done singing reminds us that Christ has risen indeed and that what he became in his glorified state, we too will get to share in that glory someday, that death is not the end. Because if that's not true, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, we are pitiable people. We're fools. We're wasting our time here. You should have just slept in this morning. But Christ raised from the dead. And that is the glorious truth that we celebrate together. I'm so glad that all of you are here to sing and celebrate with us together. I appreciate your flexibility with the weird seating we got going on. I know you all came in and were like, what on earth is this? Well, we had a wedding last night. Not my wedding. Somebody had a wedding here last night. And so that's why we got a little bit longer rows and one big middle aisle. Now you can understand. We'll have it back to normal hopefully next Sunday. We appreciate you being flexible. If you're a visitor with us, thank you for being here. We are so glad you're here, and we want to extend a special welcome to you as well. Um, if you would, all of you, pull out your worship folder. Hopefully you picked one up as you walked in. If you didn't, feel free to get up. There's a table there at the back of the room, and you can find a bunch of these. There's also a table up here at the front of the room, but I don't think you want to walk in front of everybody to get one. In this worship folder, you'll find all sorts of information about what's going on in the church, different events and ministries. you also find on the back there um, the different uh, Sunday school classes that happen during the 930 hour. We just started a new season, and so if you're wondering what's being taught, you really haven't missed much. So next week, you can plan to come to one of those. That would be awesome. Inside the worship folder, you'll find this little checking card. I would encourage you, we gave you guys a little hiatus from it last week, but I would encourage you to fill that out for us real quick this week. Let us know that you're here. We have a digital version of this. You can download our Church Center app, and you can fill this same checking card out um, on the app if you don't like icky paper. Oftentimes, there's events on the back of the card, and if you're like, oh, I want to go to that event, all you have to do is... Put your name on this, and then at the end of the service, there's white tables there at, this, at either entrance. You can slide it in the slot in the, sli- in the side, and you're signed up. But you can also sign up on the church app as well. We also have a spot on the back of this card for you to let us know any prayer requests that you might have. We, as a church body, love to pray. We are a praying church. And if there's any prayer requests or praises you want to share, please do so. If there's anything that's confidential, you can mark it as such. And the pastors get together every week on Tuesday, and we pray through every single card, the confidential ones and the, and the non-confidential, and it's a privilege to do so. We love to hear about how God is answering your prayers too. So if you're asking us to pray about something and you have updates to share, let us know on the back of that card so that we can praise God with you. Now, we are entering an exciting season coming up here. We've got Life Groups kickoff. This is the season for signing up for Life Groups. The Life Groups won't actually start until the fall. So I think we have about uh, four weeks of sign-up time where we're going to keep talking to you from the pulpit about the importance of Life Groups. They're important. They are the lifeblood of this church. A church of this size with two services, it's really hard to get to know everybody 
and to have uh, a sense of real genuine fellowship and connection, to, to develop relationships in which you feel comfortable in confessing your sin to one another, to growing with each other, praying for each other. Life groups enable the big church to meet in small ways. So it's a really vital aspect of our ministry. I know many of you are already plugged into life groups, but if you come across somebody who's not, lovingly encourage them to join because it is so important for connectivity to the church. Now, if you want to learn more about the life groups, you can go out at the end of the service, out that door, and you'll see these panels out there with pictures of life groups all over it. I don't know what the thing is called because I don't work at Hobby Lobby, but it's some kind of panels. And you'll see life group pictures plastered all over it. So check that out. And if you still have, there's usually little spots where you can sign up if you see a group and you're like, oh, they do kid, they have, they, they want kids to come. I got kids. I'm going to sign up for that one. But if you have questions more, you can just email or call the office and, and say, hey, I want to get plugged into a life group. How can you help me? We want to help you get plugged in and we'll do anything we can. So that is something that for the next four weeks, we're going to be uh, sounding the horn on that because it's really important. Well, before we continue singing, would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that indeed Christ has risen from the grave. Our faith is not futile. The things we do to serve you, Jesus, the ways we worship you, getting out of bed on Sunday mornings, none of it is a waste. It is a worthy thing that we do. It is so worthwhile. It's worthwhile to gather together to praise you, to thank you, to celebrate you for showing us your grace and your kindness and saving us from our sin. I pray that you will help us to fix our eyes upon you this morning as through the songs, through the, through the corporate praying, and through the time of preaching from your word. I pray that you will continue to sharpen us, Lord, mold us to be like your son, and help us to leave here singing songs in your, of praise to you all throughout the week as we seek to live in, in obedience to you and be a beacon of light to this world living in sin. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you would, please stand again. So 
be able to worship with you all this morning. Um, I'm also thankful to be able to pray with you all together here. So let's go ahead and do that. But before I do, uh, we want to dismiss the children uh, to Children's Church. So those that are uh, age three to kindergarten um, can go ahead and head on back to the south side of the church and up the stairs to hear the gospel in an age-appropriate way. With a, we're thankful for that ministry there to uh, minister to our children and families that way. So let's pray here this morning. Father, we're thankful uh, for your church. We're thankful for your spirit. We're thankful for your son that you sent to suffer and die um, on the cross so many years ago. We're thankful for your mighty works and all your deeds that you renew each and every day. You're so gracious and merciful. We're thankful for the unity that you provide us, uh, that we can work as one body here, that we're able to do so much for your glory as you work through us. We're thankful for the two VBSs we've heard the last two weeks in here and in Goodfield. We're thankful for the community Sunday service that we had. Uh, you are so good. We want your name proclaimed, uh, not only in Mackinac and the surrounding communities, but uh, in all the world. We're thankful for our GO partners and their faithful uh, ministries all around the world. Particularly thankful for Mateo and Gabby Alzate um, as they are serving our church here with uh, the students' uh, San Francisco short-term missions trip. Uh, please be with them. Give them wisdom as they lead that trip. Uh, be with our students as they're uh, faithfully serving you in the Tenderloin District, that uh, they will be faithful, that they will persevere, that they'll be bold, uh, that they will be humble. Uh, we're thankful um, for the travel that uh, you've given them, and when there's a hiccup there that they're still stuck in Dallas, um, but we're thankful for the upcoming flight out this afternoon. Please uh, let all the connecting flights make it there that they can get to San Francisco this evening uh, and be able to serve you. We trust in you and we're thankful that we, uh, that you are mighty uh, and that you are God of all of creation. We're also um, thankful for um, your faithfulness with our um, associate pastor search and our outreach director search. You've been so faithful to us. Uh, continue, we ask for wisdom um, we're thankful for your, all that you have helped us with. We're thankful for our life groups and so many groups that um, have been so faithful um, and also the ones that are starting up soon. Please bless that ministry and grow, uh, strengthen uh, the life group leaders that they will be full of love uh, and uh, grace, that they'll be bold in the truth as they lead um, the life groups. We're also thankful um, for how much you have encouraged and strengthened those that are suffering right now in sicknesses. Um, help those that are sick and weak right now, uh, that they suffer well for your glory. Um, when we are weak, we are strong because it is you working through us. Help us take the eyes off, take our eyes off of this world uh, and look to you. Also, uh, please, uh, encourage and uh, surround those that are hurting that have lost loved ones recently. Um, we're thankful that death has no sting for those that love you. Um, please redirect 
um, the focus on you and encourage and strengthen the friends and families of those um, that have passed on. But we're so thankful uh, for your grace and mercy. Uh, please, Lord, be with us uh, this week that we will glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead, so our faith is not after some unknowable, fleeting entity, but it's in the sure and steady anchor, our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand again, if you're able, and sing with us? the shore and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold shall never be removed. Rise the shore and steady anchor while the tempest rages on. When temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won. I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Rise the shore and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow. I told now, lift your eyes to Calvary. This my palace of assurance, see his love forever prove. All my hope is in the anchor, it shall never be
the anchor, it shall never be removed. You may be That's a very sweet and powerful song, some wonderful truths that calm the soul and find their resolve in the Lord's power, not our own, in the midst of difficulties. Thank you. I'm very thankful for the music team for leading us in, in singing those wonderful truths. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles or swipe your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, we have our ushers that are going to walk down the aisles, uh, or the aisle, I guess, uh, and um, if you just raise your hand, if you don't have a Bible, they'd be more than happy to give you one. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word for yourself, please take this home with you as our gift to you. We never want anyone to leave this church building without having their own copy of God's Word. And while you're opening your Bibles, I want to ask you a question. Do you know what a watershed moment is? A watershed moment is a moment in history, an event that occurs that changes history that comes after that. It changes the course of things and the way people act. The invention of the Gutenberg Press in 1436 the declaration, uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, which were signed in the 1860s, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1942, the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. These were a few of watershed moments throughout history, events that occurred that changed forever the way we think and act. But the greatest, single greatest watershed moment of all history was the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That event changed the course of history for all humanity and has altered the way people live now and for all eternity. Part of the impact upon humanity was the fundamental change in the relationship between Jews, the nation of Israel, and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. Pastor Kevin has done a wonderful job the last two Sundays of explaining to us and helping us understand how Jesus removed the division that existed between Israel and Gentiles as he preached through the end of Ephesians chapter 2. What was the cause of this division? Let me briefly just recycle through what we've already studied. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, you see God chose one man, Abraham, to make a nation out of. This nation would become his special people, Israel. They were to remain a separate and distinct nation from all the rest of the world through the laws that God gave them. This from the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt to the time when Jesus walked on this earth, a period of about 2,000 years, Israel had a God-ordained system of racial segregation 
religious segregation. You had to be an Israelite to be able to worship and enjoy the blessings of God. And even though Gentiles were allowed to worship God, those who did had to become Jews externally. And even then they were not able to share fully in the blessings and privileges that Israel had. Because of this, Israel was tempted toward pride based on their ethnic and religious and national identity. They tended to, you know, snub their noses at everybody else. And the Gentiles were eager to do the same in return. In fact, during Paul's time, the Greeks viewed everybody else in the world who wasn't a Greek as a barbarian. So you can imagine the hubbub that was created upon Jesus' resurrection when he tore down that division between Jew and Gentile. There was no more distinction now. Anyone in the world who put their faith in Jesus Christ would have the same full equal privileges and blessings without having to become a Jew. For the Jew and the Gentile Christians, there was a lot of resentment and bitterness to work through. There were also theological differences to work through. And though they knew that they were united in Christ, living out that reality, living together in the church with harmony and peace, that was difficult. It was so hard that even the apostles struggled with it. In Galatians chapter 2, we learn that the apostle Peter, he understood that it was okay to hang out with Gentiles and eat meat and eat bacon now. And so he was all hanging out with the Gentiles, but then when his Jewish friends came along, he was like, oh, I can't hang out with you guys anymore. I don't want, this looks bad. And Paul had to call him out on his hypocrisy. Now, even though we as a church are far removed from this Jewish-Gentile distinction historically, churches today are still threatened by division all the time. Division can happen because of sin. We are a room full of broken sinners. We sin against each other from time to time. Our pride and our selfishness divide us. And then there's times when we're tempted to withhold forgiveness and cling to bitterness instead. Division can even come from non-essential issues, non-divisive issues, non-sinful issues. It, it can happen over differences in preferences like what style of music we sing on Sunday or what instrumentation you see on the stage. We can have division over theological issues. Newcastle is not immune to the threats of division. Now, to be clear, unity does not mean the absence of conflict. Just like peace and marriage or in family does not mean the absence of conflict, unity means that we fight for and strive for handling conflict in a godly, Christ-honoring way. In order to maintain unity in the church, you have to know that there is always a cost. And we are always needing to be ready to fight for it and suffer that cost. Sometimes the cost involves simple sacrifice. Sometimes it involves suffering. So the question that all of us need to answer this morning is, is church unity worth the cost? Couldn't Paul have just gone and started a street, uh, church for the Gentiles and then down the street started a church for the Jews? 
That would have made things easy. Can't we just have churches that have contemporary music and churches that just do hymns only? Oh, wait, there are some. Can't we just have churches that believe everything I believe theologically? Why do we have to get along? Is it worth it? Our text this morning, Paul's going to answer that question. The simple answer is, yeah, it's worth it. It is way worth it. So if you're able, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as I read from Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, I am... I am a weak man, and this is your precious and wonderful and amazing word. I am not sufficient for such things, so I pray for your strength. Help me to be clear in teaching your word. Help enlighten our hearts to the truth of your word. Help us to see where we need to see, bring conviction where conviction is needed. Help us to apply it in our lives. Help us to see the costs and the worth of unity in our church. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So is unity in the church worth it? Well, the main point of this passage is that unity in the church is worth it no matter the cost. And as we walk through this text this morning, we will see that Paul shows us the cost for unity and the worth for unity. And the reason why he does that is so that you will not become discouraged when you suffer for it. So the first thing he talks about in verses one through six is the cost. In verse one, Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, hyphen. It's interesting. He, he starts off, what Paul's doing is he's starting off to pray. 
He is ready to pray based on everything he has just talked about. The phrase, for this reason, refers back to what he just got done talking about at the end of Ephesians chapter two. Because Gentiles are now equal and united together in Christ with the Jews, Paul wants to pray that God will help the believers preserve that unity. But his prayer doesn't start until verse 14. Because he suddenly breaks off into a big side trail, a big tangent, a digression. You probably have that big hyphen in your Bible, which shows the beginning of a long parenthetical thought that goes from verse 2 to verse 13. Jump down on your page real quick and look at verse 14. It picks back up with Paul's original train of thought. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he busts out into prayer. So you, you know how you go into the store sometimes intending to buy just like one thing? And you end up walking without, with a bigger receipt. Like, it's the Walmart effect. You know, they, they, they position everything there. My wife will send me to Walmart. She's like, I just need this. And I come home with a bunch of stuff because I make decisions based on my stomach. I walk by and I'm like, that looks good. That looks good. That's kind of what's happening with Paul here. He has this idea and this goal. I need to, we need to pray about unity. But, oh, I need to talk to you about this real quick. And what is it that triggers that thought? What is it that triggers this tangent? Well, it's when he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul describes himself this way to remind the Gentiles that there is a cost that comes with unity in the church. It's a, it's a cost that requires sacrifice for Jesus. It's a cost that ultimately should lead us all to bow in prayer for help. So as Paul was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he was a literal prisoner in Rome because of Jewish opposition against the message of unity. The Jews and Gentiles were equal now in God's eyes through Christ, and the Jews did not like that message. By all outward appearances, Paul was a prisoner of Rome, but he didn't see it that way. He had a far greater perspective on his suffering Paul wasn't in prison because of Rome. He was ultimately in prison because of Jesus. See, Paul viewed his sacrifice as for Jesus because we belong to him. It doesn't matter what others do to you while you're on earth. We never cease to be Jesus's possession. Scripture teaches that we are owned by him because he bought us with a price. And that price was his blood. We also sacrifice for Jesus because we are controlled by him. As his prisoner, as his possession, we are subject to his plans and purposes. We're not free to do as we please. We are called to do what pleases him. We sacrifice for Jesus because we are controlled by him. Paul himself was compelled by Jesus to proclaim the gospel that would cause his suffering. This is a fascinating description. Like, do you ever, when you suffer, consider yourself a prisoner of Jesus? If you do, it helps give perspective on the difficulties we encounter. When we face threats of division in the church, it's tempting to just respond in two ways. It's tempting to dig your heels in and in pride fight for what you think is right because of pride or selfishness, or the other opposite extreme is to flee. When you see division, you're like, I'm out of here. I don't want to deal with this. Or you're afraid of man. You're either afraid of man or you're lazy. 
there's a cost. But when we see that the cost of unity is sacrifice for Jesus, it removes the victim mentality that we often don. As one commentator put it, perspective is all important. How we view and react to circumstances is more important than the circumstances themselves. If all we can see is our immediate situation, then our circumstances control us. So instead of the situation being about me and what I want, it's now about Jesus and what he wants because I am his prisoner. It's about worshiping and glorifying him no matter what situation I'm in. And that's a cost worth paying. But unity has another cost. Not only does it require us to sacrifice for Jesus, it requires us to sacrifice for others, for one another. Notice that Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In essence, he's saying, I'm in prison for your benefit. The message of the gospel that Paul carried to the Gentiles that saved them was the reason why Paul was in prison. You know, this would have hit the church kind of like a guilty dagger. Like, it's like, oh, yo, this, it's our fault that you're in prison? I feel bad. But Paul, this is why Paul digresses because he's saying you should not feel bad about this. How do I know that? Look at verse 13 in, in chapter 3. Verses 1 and 13 are kind of like the bread on a sandwich that hold the meat and cheese in. Okay, verse 13 says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. That's, whole, this, that's the point of Paul's digression here. He is going to go on this, this uh, tangent in order to help them not be discouraged about the costs of the message of unity in the gospel. Yes, Paul is suffering on their benefit, for their benefit, but it's not their fault. Jesus is in control and it's totally worth it. So in verse two, Paul begins his digression in an effort to curb the guilt they might uh, be tempted to feel. In verses two through three, he writes, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And so there's some little weird grammar stuff going on here. It's another one of Paul's famous long grammatical sentences um, that does not have very many periods in it. So Paul, what he is doing here is he is telling them that I have sacrificed for you by sharing the truth with you. Paul was graciously made a steward or a caretaker uh, by God of the mystery of Christ. This obligated him to share the truth which led to his suffering. He also sacrificed for them by explaining that truth. So in verses three through six, Paul says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it was, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, it's one thing to proclaim a message. It's another thing to sacrifice your time in discipling and helping somebody understand that truth and apply it in their life. Paul initially spent two years in Ephesus teaching the church before he was imprisoned. But now all he can do to sacrifice for them is write, 
So he writes this letter to continue helping. He's repeating truths about this mystery to them in order to help them really understand it. Because, you know, when we hear some big truth for the first time, we don't always understand everything that's involved. When you are first saved, when you are first converted, you didn't understand everything about the gospel or about the Bible. Over time, somebody taught you and trained you and discipled you and helped you grow. That's what Paul's doing here. That's why he's repeating this truth about the mystery, even though he talked about it in chapter two. The idea that God would unite the Jews and Gentiles together in the church was a mystery that nobody knew in the Old Testament. Nobody reading the Old Testament before Jesus came would have ever understood this or seen this coming. Remember, a mystery when you see the word mystery in the New Testament, it's not like Scooby-Doo or Sherlock Holmes, Nancy Drew novels. It's not a secret that if you just have the right clues, then you can pull off the mask on the villain and find out who it is. That's not, what that's, that's not what's meant here. A mystery is something that God has purposely hidden so that you can't know it until he reveals it. And so in the New Testament, through Christ, through his holy apostles and prophets, he has revealed that the church is the way in which God is glorified. Now, even though none of us have been given a special obligation of apostleship like Paul, even though we don't have a special mission to go to the Gentiles and, and proclaim this message, we still have an obligation to God. We have a great commission to share the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. We have an obligation to share the treasure of the gospel that's entrusted to us inside and outside the church. Each of us has been entrusted with spiritual gifts that enable us to do ministry. These spiritual gifts are meant to be used to edify one another and never meant to be used for selfish gain. We have an obligation to use our opportunities, skills, and knowledge to serve and sacrifice for each other. We have an obligation to live in harmony, to serve each other, forgive each other, bear each other's burdens, pray for one another, minister to each other. This has been given to us by God. This is part of the cost of unity. And Jesus reminds us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that we need to examine the costs of following him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus tells us our life should be patterned by continual self-denial, a willingness to suffer to the point of death for others and for Christ, and a willingness to obey his commands. So is church unity worth it? None of us want to do anything hard in life unless there's a payoff, unless it's worth it, right? We don't work an eight to five job five days a week for nothing. We do it so that we can have food on the table. We can have a roof over our heads. Nobody goes into surgery just for fun. They go into surgery hoping that it's going to make their life better, that, there's, that it's worth it. So what makes the cost of unity in the church worth it? Well, that's what Paul explains in the rest of this, this, uh, this passage in verses 7 through 13. In verses 7 through 13, Paul explains the worth of unity. And the first reason it's worth it is because it showcases the gospel. Look at verses 7 through 9. 
of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. It's interesting in this, at the end of verse six and verse seven here, he, he makes a connection. He makes a connection between the mystery of Christ, we have that union of Jews and Gentiles, and the gospel. The gospel is the means by which the unity in church happens. So another way to say it is that when the church is united together in harmony, it displays the gospel. So the gospel is what makes it happen. And when we make unity happen, when we preserve it, it displays the gospel. There's a relationship there. So how does Paul showcase the gospel in his ministry? Well, he says it's by showing God's power. In verse 7, Paul specifically reflects on how the power of God is shown in his own life when God saved him and made him a minister, a servant of the gospel. Paul's own testimony, if you recall, is a radical conversion that displays God's power. Paul was on his way to Damascus, ready to persecute and imprison Jewish and Gentile Christians. He hated them. But that wasn't enough to overcome God's power when Christ appeared before him and turned him away from crushing the church to serving and loving the church. You know, people would have looked at Paul during his time before he was a believer and been like, dude, that guy, he, could, he would never be a Christian. He could never be saved. Much the way we're tempted when we see like an angry atheist and be like, oh, that guy, how can that guy be saved? Or see a corrupt politician and say, man, they are so far from Christ. Nobody is far from Christ when it comes to God's power. Yet here Paul stands, even though he was a hard-hearted uh, sinner and a Pharisee, a self-righteous Pharisee, here he stands as a showcase of God's power in uniting him into the church that he persecuted. Romans 1.16 reminds us it is the power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So every time Paul shared the gospel, he himself was a walking billboard of God's power. Paul also showcased God's gospel by showing off God's wealth. Verse eight says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So every time Paul shared the gospel, he showed his power, but also the deep, infinite pockets of God. Paul is blown away by this privilege. He says, I am the least of all the saints, which if you literally translate that from the Greek, what Paul is saying is he's saying, here's where the bottom, this is where the least of all Christians are, and I'm, I'm far below that. Paul had a really humble disposition because he saw his sinfulness in light of God's holiness, and he recognized that he was a wretched man. He saw the plank in his own eye and in comparison to everybody else had a speck of sin in theirs. That is why Paul is so humble to say, I am the least. The unsearchable riches of Christ. What a privilege to proclaim that. But what is it? What are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, simply put, the riches of Christ are everything that God is and everything that God gives 
to us. So when we share and show the wealth of God to the world, we are showing his attributes, his grace, his love, his righteousness, his holiness, his kindness. We are showcasing his blessings that he lavishly poured out on our lives, eternal life, the fruit of the spirit, blessings that are awaiting us in heaven, adoption as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. We are showing radically changed, brand new, born again hearts to the world that God has given to us. In John chapter 13, Jesus says that the world will know we are his disciples when we love each other as Christ has loved us. The love that God fills in us and that we share to others is what identifies us. It shows God's kindness and it shows off his wealth. Paul also showcased the gospel by showing God's plan. Verse 9, he says, not only is he able to show off the riches of Christ, but he's also assigned to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul tells us that unity is worth the cost because it brings to light God's plan. The plan that is allows everyone in the world who puts their faith in Jesus to be saved. It's an open invitation. The problem is, though, that our unity as a church either obscures the light of that message or makes it shine all the brighter. Right? I mean, if somebody came to your door to sell you something, let's say light bulbs, Somebody comes to your door to sell you light bulbs and they say, these are the best light bulbs ever. And you say, oh, great. Do they work? No. I don't want to buy it. I don't want that. So if we come forth in the world and say, hey, look how the gospel has changed us, has transformed us. Look at all these blessings that we have. And then people say, does it work? And they look inside the church and they see division and strife and hostility toward each other. Say, I don't want any of that. Every other religion in the world is just like that. I got enough of that out here in the world. I don't, want, I don't want to buy what you're selling. I don't believe you. But when we as a church fight for unity, to dis, it displays the gospel, displays his power, displays his wealth and his plan. And it's winsome to the world. But man, it's an undeserved honor to do such a thing. That's what Paul has expressed here. We too are the least deserving of all the saints to do this. We are sinners, but God has made us his ambassadors to share this message. And what an undeserved impact we have, we get to make. We are just jars of clay holding a precious treasure of the gospel, yet God has seen it fit to use us weak sinners to change the lives of people for all eternity. You don't do that yourself, only the power of God does that. What an undeserved privilege it is. This is what makes the cost of unity in church worth it. The unity of our church impacts our ability to showcase the gospel. We are living, walking billboards of the gospel. And it all brings God glory. And that's the second reason why unity is worth it. Unity is worth it because it proclaims the gospel and it's also worth it because it glorifies God. It showcases God's glory. We showcase God's glory through our unity. Another way you could say it is this. God's gospel and his glory are revealed or obscured by the level of unity in our church. We either adorn or bring shame and dirt and dishonor 
to the gospel and his glory. Look at verses 10 through 13. Paul says this. This is the big cosmic reason, the big cosmic purpose why the church exists. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So the first way we show God's glory to the world is by showing off God's wisdom. We show his wisdom. Have you ever wondered why God leaves us on earth after we're converted? I mean, he has created us and he has saved us to bring him glory. So sometimes I think it would make sense if God just beamed me to heaven right away where I would be glorified and no longer sin and I would just worship him and give him glory. That seems like a wise thing to me. But in God's wisdom, he has created the church to bring him greater glory by us serving him in the midst of sinfulness and suffering and proclaiming the gospel. Verse 10 says that the reason he leaves the church on here is to display his manifold wisdom. Manifold means multifaceted, multicolored, varied, many-sided or intricate. God's wisdom is far different from our wisdom. In fact, the unbelieving world looks at God's wisdom and says, this is, this is silly, this is foolish. It's God's wisdom that said, I'm gonna send my son down to earth to die to save my people. It's God's wisdom that says, I'm gonna take Gentiles and Jews who hate each other and I'm gonna put them together in a church. It's God's wisdom that says, you know what? I'm going to save people through weak, weak sinners proclaiming the gospel message instead of me telling people straight out. It's God's wisdom that says our growth as Christians is dependent upon us being together, sharpening each other, and serving each other. This wisdom determined that God would be most glorified when the church displays his wisdom not only to the world, but as our text says, to all spiritual beings, angels, and demons. That's what Paul means when he refers to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That, that phrase is used a couple different times in the a letter to the Ephesians. It's used sometimes in direct reference to angels and sometimes in direct reference to Satan and demons. Here, it's not, it's not, he doesn't distinguish between angels and demons, so I think you can take it as both. You see, the angels in heaven, they're not privy to all of God's wisdom and plans. They are serving the Lord actively, but without knowing the outcome. The parables of Jesus tell us that angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents. See, God didn't tell them all the plan about how he was going to save people or when he was going to do it. So the angels are sitting up there on the edge of their seats, and when somebody repents, they're like, yeah, they're celebrating. Angels, as Peter tells us, long to know when the Messiah would appear. And then after he appeared, all the glories that would come after, God didn't tell them. Instead of him telling them directly, he wants us to do it. 
Angels don't get to experience the same blessings and grace as we do, so they look on longingly. And since they exist to glorify God, when we are united in a church and living in peace and harmony, we make known God's awesome wisdom to angels, and they glorify God because of it. It increases their praise. God in his wisdom chose to use us weak vessels to showcase his awesomeness. Commentator William Hendrickson wrote, the church therefore does not exist for itself. It exists for God, for his glory. When the angels in heaven behold the works and wisdom of God displayed in the church, their knowledge of the God whom they adore is increased and they rejoice and glorify him. That's awesome. Now the demons, even though the demons don't care about God's wisdom, they reject it and they don't wanna glorify God, doesn't matter. That's what they were created for. They will glorify God in their defeat, their judgment and destruction. Satan and his demons are always seeking to sow division in the church. But when we resist the schemes of Satan, when we persevere in unity in the church, It is God working in us to show his wisdom to the demons to spell out their judgment, doom, and our victory. The next way our unity showcases God's glory is by showing his purpose behind it all. Verse 11 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God didn't unite Jews and Gentiles in the church because the Jews blew it too many times. All right? God started off with Israel. You're going to be my special people. Oh, you can't get your act together. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. That's not the point. That's not what God did. This, this, this whole idea of the church is not a plan B. God was not building the plane while in the air. This has always been plan A since before the earth was even created. God purposed to display his wisdom and his glory through the church. That was his eternal design. And when we preserve our unity in the church, we are showcasing God's eternal design. And lastly, we showcase God's glory by showing his blessings. Look at verses 12 through 13. In whom, Christ, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So here Paul says that our unity in the church showcases the blessings God gives us, particularly of our relationship with God. Gentiles, that's most of us are Gentiles in this room. We have now complete, full, unfettered access to God without becoming a Jew. There's no more Jewish court. There's no more Gentile court. There's no more literal wall of division or metaphorical division. There's no more distinction. As Pastor Kevin said last week, at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. All of us together make up the temple of God. We are one body united in Christ as our head. We have access, boldness, and confidence to approach the Father where he used to be behind a giant veil that only the high priest could go into once a year. We can go to that holy and righteous father any time of the day through prayer. 
We also have the blessing of a new status in Christ. Israel used to be exclusively God's chosen people, but now the Gentiles, without erasing the Israel nation and the promises God has given to them and their importance as God's people, without erasing that, God has grafted the Gentiles in to be his chosen people as well. Paul says in verse 13 that his suffering resulted in their glory. It resulted in the Gentiles receiving the honor and privilege of being God's people. That's what's meant by glory there. All of this, the showing of God's blessings, his purposes, his wisdom, all of this works together to showcase God's glory. That's why unity in the church is worth it. And the whole point of this passage is for Paul to prevent us as a church from being discouraged by the cost of unity. He wants us to be sobered and aware of the costs, but to not be discouraged by it. He wants us to count the cost and rejoice in the glory. That's the main application of this message. Count the cost, rejoice in the glory. The question you have to ask yourself today, though, each one of us has to ask this. You have to examine your heart and ask, how are you suffering for the sake of Christian unity? What costs have you incurred in your life to preserve unity? Or what costs are you willing to take on? Do you refuse to take revenge when someone sins against you? Do you extend forgiveness as freely as Christ has extended forgiveness to you? As freely and as fully? Or are you holding on to bitterness? Do you prefer and defer others on matters? Do you deny yourself while seeking the benefit, the advantage of somebody else? Are you actively using your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ? Or do you simply come on a Sunday morning and that is the maximum level of your participation in the church? You sit in the seat as a consumer and that's it. Are you able to discern which theological hills are important to die on? Which theological hills are important to divide over and which are not? Sometimes division over theology theology is a right thing to do. But how can you tell? This is a big issue of division in churches. So how can you tell? It's important to be able to do theological triage to assess what is worth dividing over. So imagine a dartboard where the bullseye represents the most essential and important doctrines the church must have. Gavin Ortland is a pastor and an author, and he wrote a book that helps categorize it this way. He talks about essential doctrine, urgent, important, and unimportant. So four levels. Essential doctrine would be the bullseye. This is doctrine like the Trinity. Justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through in Christ alone. This would be doctrines like the authority of Scripture. These are doctrines that are worth dividing over. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul reserved his most divisive language 
for essential gospel-related issues. He said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That word in the Greek, anathema, means damned. That's some divisive language, but it's reserved for matters that relate to the gospel. The next rank is urgent. Because it impacts the health and practice of the church to such a degree that it tends to prevent closeness of fellowship, but we would still consider the person a brother and sister in Christ if we disagree. This this second tier of doctrines would be the reason why we have lots of different church denominations. These doctrines could range from charismatic gifts or the meaning and the mode of baptism, women serving as pastors or even election and predestination. The next rank would be labeled as important because it impacts Christian theology, but even if we differ, we can still remain close in fellowship. I would also include the doctrine of election and predestination in this category, along with the other categories like eschatology, the timing of Christ's millennial reign, a pre-tribulational rapture or post-trib, those kinds of questions, or how old is the earth? Those are questions where we can have disagreement, but we can still fellowship and minister and co-labor together. The next label would be unimportant. These are things that should not impact fellowship in the least. This would be things like musical styles of worship or how many instruments are on the stage or what kinds of instruments on the stage or whether Adam and Eve had a belly button or not. Not important. We can disagree on it. I don't think they did, but (laughs) theological triage doesn't imply that some doctrines are more important than others. All doctrine is important. But what it does is it helpfully teaches us that there is an essential foundation of truth that holds up the system. And that essential bullseye of doctrine is non-negotiable. To deny the essential doctrines is to deny Christianity. And that's worth dividing over. All the other ones, not so much. So this kind of triage can be a helpful tool in promoting unity within a church. It helps us make sure to be careful not to elevate certain doctrines to a level that they shouldn't be. Charismatic gifts should not be an essential doctrinal issue that divides people, among others. So throughout this passage, Paul has shown us that he was willing to be bit for, for, the, sake of, for the sake of unity. He was willing to suffer the costs of unity in the church. Are you willing to get bit Are you willing to get hurt? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of unity in this church? Why bother? Why bother being a part of a church that invites suffering? Why not just watch my favorite pastor online, which I know is me, and meet once in a while at Busy Corner over pie and talk about Jesus? Why bother being around a bunch of church leaders who don't believe the same thing I do? Why should I stick around when someone sins against me? Why should I stick around when the church doesn't sing the songs I like or how I like? Because it's worth it. Because it showcases God's gospel and it displays his glory. Not just to the earth, but to the spiritual realm as well. And you bet, this is hard work. 
this is hard sacrificial work, but Christ is more precious than our freedom. Christ is more precious than our comfort, security, and prosperity. His glory is worth it. But it's so hard that we can't do it on our own. Where does the power to fight for unity come from? You'll have to come back next Sunday and listen to Pastor Summers preach on the end of chapter 3, which is all about prayer, the prayer that we need to preserve unity in the church. So you have to come back next week for that. But for this week, all we need to do is count the cost and rejoice in the glory of God and in the glory of our salvation. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word that you have revealed to us the difficulties and the costs of preserving unity in the church. But you've also revealed to us the awesome worth of making those sacrifices. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to grow. Help us to grow in love for one another despite our differences. Help us to grow in love for another even when we sin against each other. Help us to love like Christ has loved us. Help us to fight to preserve that unity, Lord, so that we can glorify you. Help us to have the right perspective on these things. Help us to think with discernment and help Newcastle to strive for this unity so that we continue to be a beacon of the gospel and a beacon of light that makes manifold your wisdom to all creation. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tyson. I don't know about you, but I just feel so encouraged to not be like the world, to look past the mundane, the trivial, the unimportant stuff, and to join together. So would you join us and join together as a church as we sing worship and praises to our Lord? Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the the Lord of
song. Um, I forgot to mention earlier that if you are a visitor here, just outside these double doors, we do have a welcome desk and we would love to meet you there. We have a gift we'd like to give to you as well and we'd love to answer any questions you have about our church. Um, So if you want to stop by there, we'd love to see you. You might have already stopped by, so I could be giving you old news. But I also want to thank all of you who have been praying and serving in the last two weeks of VBS. We've had two full awesome weeks of VBS. I'm so thankful for all the ways you guys have served and all the ways you guys have been praying for that. It's been such an awesome opportunity. Just a reminder, this week, please be praying for our team that's down in San Francisco um, this week. They've already run into some difficult trials along the way, stuck in Dallas, haven't even made it to San Fran yet. So be praying for them in that ministry that the Lord would be glorified in their endeavors and that the Alzade family would be um, really encouraged um, through uh, just our show of support and partnership in the gospel with them. So be praying for them for that and be praying for our church. Pray for our unity as a church. Don't take it for granted. It's something we have to be on, on guard for and fighting for every day because division can crop up like that in a church. It can be a small issue, it could be a big issue, it grows and festers and creates division. So it's a gift from the Lord, and it's uh, something that the Lord has to empower us to be able to keep and preserve. So keep praying for that. Let's read our benediction together. Let's start with the address. Ephesians three twenty through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.